I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. In this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder of Truva, an online homeware marketplace that plays host to over 700 independent retailers across Europe now. The site offers customers a really carefully curated experience of unique and hard-to-find pieces and in turn is helping high street boutiques thrive in the digital age. A very warm welcome to Truva's Alex Loizu. Thanks for having me. So Alex, tell me a bit about Truva, because it's, it's a really interesting business, especially when you're looking at the evolution of the, the high street. Mm-hmm. But explain to people listening what your platform does and how it offers. And of course, tell us how it came about. Great. Uh, fundamentally, the the way that we're thinking about the high street, the, the vision that we have about the future of the high street, obviously, we know that there's a transformation going on. There's a lot of the existing big chains that are in trouble. But at the same time, we know that people haven't stopped going offline. There's still certain verticals, certain types of shops that are actually growing. And those are the types of shops that we're focused on. We see a clear difference between commoditized products that are moving online very quickly versus products that are more in the range of inspiration and discovery, specifically homewares. The experience of buying homewares is very different to buying a TV. Right? It's about decorating your home. It's about finding those bits and pieces that you're going to use in the environment that you live in in order to make it feel more like yourself. And we know that people are not buying flats anymore. They're not, it's very hard for the newer generation, the younger generation, to actually have the capital to buy. A lot of people focus more on renting. And in order to make that space your own, you don't buy furniture. You buy smaller things that you can move around with and be more flexible with. And that's a trend uh, that exists. Uh, Homewares is growing very, very quickly. And we fundamentally subscribe to the curation that is happening in the offline space, where there's beautiful shops that have selected inventory that they're testing out in the offline space, and we make those accessible to people around the world. So let's go through the backstory a little bit, because you 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 came at this with a particular background, where you're an engineer, mm-hmm. and you came at this and with your co-founder in mm-hmm. a way he was quite data-driven. Mm-hmm. You thought about this; it yeah. wasn't something that evolved from you know some little business in your bedroom. Yeah, it was. It wasn't the typical story of a startup that has just like uh, organically grown from solving a small need and then growing that from there. I think that's very fair to say. What my co-founder Mandeep noticed during his time in uh, retail consulting, retail strategy consulting and private equity was that there were more and more problems that the big chains were facing by adopting technology and being able to do basic things like inventory accuracy within physical spaces and urban environments. There was also this transformation going on in the high street where you would see that the typical example of just filling up spaces with products wasn't really working anymore. There was disruption happening in that space. And then from my perspective, I'm a software engineer, spent quite a long time building products for other people. And what I saw was that you started being able to 
map locations and figure out where a space is, but it was very hard to figure out what is inside that space. And once you're able to go that one level further, then you can start really making inventory accessible across the entire world. So a physical shop that is now just selling in their local neighborhood, imagine if you were able to open them up so that people from Australia, US, anywhere in the world would be able to buy from them. So that's kind of the two sides coming together and being like, okay, how can we use our knowledge and experience in retail, but also our technological background, you know, to create a new paradigm for the future of retail that we've envisioned. But to do that, you have to offer them basic service, which is initially at least inventory management. Because mostly small boutiques, they don't even know what was in the warehouse that they bought last year because they didn't sell it, they've forgotten about it. A lot of them don't even have a warehouse. It's really interesting for us because part of it is educating independent shops in the retail space to use inventory management systems for the first time. And inventory, sorry, for those listening, it's stock. It depends. It's, stock. it's a US term, but it's yeah. stock. It's yeah. knowing what you actually have what do you actually in have? your store, whatever that may be. Yeah, and it only makes sense for you to have technology to help you on that when you're starting to get revenues, not just from the offline space, but also from the online space. All of a sudden, the complexity changes. And that is a very strong motivation for you to start adopting technology, not just to do inventory management, but also how you deal with your logistics, the data and insights that you get by having a digital version of your sales. All of these things come together and all of a sudden, without much work, you can game change the growth of your own business without necessarily changing who you are and still remaining independent. And that is key for us. We're not here to transform these shops and build up a lot of pressure on them to have to succeed. We want them to focus on what they do best, which is the curation, which is building beautiful offline experiences, and then create the technology and the economies of scale for them. So your platform, unlike an Uber, for example, who wants to disrupt taxi firms because there's no scale there, you're actually empowering existing boutiques that have a particular skill and they do their own curation. You offer them a shop window, inventory management, and the ability to put that hexagonal pink tray in their storeroom online with real SEO so they can actually shift it. Exactly, exactly. And I think uh, the key there is there's just such potential that is, is just locked down to the physical space. When you look at the big chains right now, about 30, 40% of their revenues are already coming through the online space. For these shops, 95% is still offline. So there's quite a big percentage there that is just lost because it's not accessible. So it's not about changing them or disrupting them. It's about helping them augment what they already have, which is the value proposition around curation. And I think that that is a, a key part of our mission statement as well as a business. We're here because we believe in independence and we believe in their value for the future of retail. But the big but is, is that a lot of that volume will move online. Mm-hmm. So if the high street is 100% today, mm-hmm. you're going to lose, picking numbers now, you're going to lose 40% to the likes of Amazon because yep. they're standardized products, they're fungible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be what you do. Mm-hmm. and there's going to be a gap in the middle. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be a change there. Yeah, definitely. I think there's two things that are going through our minds when we're thinking about the future. Uh, one is that by building out those capabilities and helping these types of shops grow, there is a, a certain level of experience and knowledge that we acquire, 
which can help other people that should have physical spaces. And we know that there's going to be a lot more vacant space in the offline space <laughs> uh, as the high street is being transformed. There's a lot of people that should have an, a physical shop because they have the curation, they have the style, but they can't take the risk right now to do that. Yeah, right? So, so I thought about that. So you're actually potentially enabling people to utilize some of that that, exactly. Dark part, space, essentially. A bar, part of our vision is to get more people back into the high street, build more offline shops. Because um, you can't scale curation. You can't have 100 people sitting in a room somewhere in the Silicon Valley curating people's uh, living rooms, can you? You can. And that's, again, an interesting one. The best way to think about curation and automation of curation is a fine interplay between human curation and automated systems yeah. that enable and augment that. Uh, when people talk about AI, fine, AI, but you need the training sets. You need to have people that are able to work with whatever artificial artifact you're building. So you may use software that. to really deeply understand what somebody likes and is looking for. Yeah. So you can better find that within your your network, essentially. And inform our network about the needs of their customers, about the needs of the people, about the trends that we're seeing, so that they can take more informed decisions on how they're curating their own environment as well and does that mean then i don't know if you do this today uh, um does that mean then you can turn on alerts then so actually you'll say oh we think you'll like this which is in some boutique in you know bristol in the uk yeah uh, we never have heard of does that begin to happen then definitely yeah that's exactly what we see now is as we're expanding internationally different aesthetics different styles are being unlocked uh, it's very different when you look at the inventory of the shops in stockholm and copenhagen versus uh the shops that we have in spain and that's really interesting as well to kind of see this this change in aesthetics and how that that is a way to bring customers closer to personalize without being creepy in a sense. If I know that you like this type of aesthetic, these are the shops that are basically representing that. I don't need to know your birth date or anything like that. Um, so you've got two layers of curation, really. You've mm -hmm. got curation in terms of the products, but you have to curate the boutiques on your platform. Yeah. I like it. Curate the curators. <laughs> so you've got to curate the boutiques on your platform. Just yeah. talk me through how do you do that? Because I'm assuming that not everyone can yeah. just arrive on your platform. Yeah, I mean, the the reality is we're there for the best shops. We're there for shops that's particularly focused on homewares. Obviously, we do have some fashion shops as well. Part of it is... As we grow, it's becoming like in the UK, a lot happens from recommendations from the existing community of shops in the UK. The first few shops that we got in Berlin were, again, recommendations and referrals from the shops in, in the UK, which is interesting. But we also look at things like what kind of brands do they stock? Um, what kind of inventory mix do they have? The physical space is very important for us. Is this a place where when you walk in, inspiration and discovery happens? Is the the emotional sequence there? Because if that doesn't exist offline, it's going to be very hard for us to so bring So I assume somebody somewhere has to physically walk into that. Oh, you? yeah. So part of our uh, defensible truths, let's yeah. say, is okay. that we will visit every single shop. Yeah. It doesn't matter where they are. We will always have a physical component to building the relationship with the shop. So how many stores do you have on there? It's about 700 shops. Um, how big has that grown? It's growing quite nicely. I mean, over the past year, a year ago, we were UK-only business, UK shops, UK customers predominantly. Over the past year, we managed to figure out the playbook to start expanding that. And we're seeing more and more customers coming from international markets as well, which is is really important for us, right? Like when I think as a founder, when I think about the vision, the long term, 
I want to see a world where independent shops across the world are accessible to people across the world. So if you're uh, in Sydney, you should be able to discover and get inspired by shops in York, Stockholm, Copenhagen and Tokyo at the same time without having to take a trade-off on the end customer experience, without having to take a a trade-off on the fulfillment experience as well of actually getting those products. So you're, you're riding on the you know, rapid development of logistics, yeah. no matter where you are, where a particular physical product is or piece of inventory. And then importantly, just explain to us how you make money. Yeah, so it's pretty standard. Uh, we take a commission on every transaction. Obviously, the commission rate we take, we make sure that it stays at a level where shops are getting enough revenues out of there in order to make it very profitable for them. But at the same time, enough revenue to make sure that we can exist for the future. And do you charge for the inventory management implementation? So there is a, an initial joining fee. The good old setup fee. Yeah, it's more... Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're joining a community, if you have a bit of skin in the game, then we want people to take an active decision that they want to be part of us and deploy some capital to indicate that they, they really want to be there. The other part to it, though, is that as we are building out our technological capabilities, we're building up more and more of a SaaS platform, which is a so very SaaS, interesting... SaaS, for those listening, is software as, as a, a service, service yes. subscription-based. Yeah, so everything from printing out shipping labels to inventory management to everything else, as it gets refined more, it's specifically built for bricks and mortar shops. And that's an offering that doesn't really exist out there. So that's another revenue line that we're looking at. I see that once uh, that's embedded, yeah. it's quite hard for them to, hard in a way, to move on. To yeah. Kind of locks them in and It's um, What we see is that there are major problems that these guys are facing right now. They will find maybe a, a freelance developer who will build something for them and spend quite a lot of money on that. Or they will try to kind of spin up a Shopify website and then have another point of sale provider and then spend a lot of money kind of integrating one with the other. These guys are not necessarily technologically savvy in the sense they're very good, but like they're not engineers and not people that... So that's a good point, actually. Uh, a lot of people listening yeah. might think, well, why don't you just go and get a Shopify account? Yeah. And you're, you're vertically integrating the whole process yeah. from inventory management yeah. all the way through to SEO yeah. and converting the sale. Yeah. And... I mean, a lot of them have a Shopify website and we're very happy with that. If you want to have your own online website, go for it. The problem is you create your online website. You only have like 250, 300 products. You go online, you're one of billions of pages out there. You're not a destination. And you, on your own, you just don't have the economies of scale that are required in this competitive environment that we are right now to be able to create the best possible experience for your customer. You can't afford to do free shipping. You can't afford to market your products out there. You can't afford to go against the other players that are in the space. So why not come together as a community? It makes a lot more sense. And this podcast is about re- rethinking business. Yeah. And I guess, and that's a problem you're solving, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> that, that part actually is very interesting because we're kind of rethinking business on how to work with independent shops and, and help them gain more of an online percentage of sales. But at the same time, that means that we within the business need to constantly rethink on how we approach the problem and as we grow and how we can stay on the one hand side true to our values, but at the same time, build a big business and make sure that we have a profitable future 
So it's kind of a, a dual rethinking business process happening. And let's go through the process of you know your software engineer building the platform. Yeah. So I'm assuming that when you first released the first code, it wasn't quite the same product you've got today. Oh, I was and dodgy. I, I, yeah. Well, how has that evolved? Because yeah. you talk about you know MVPs, which yeah. is minimum viable products all the time, but sometimes it doesn't work because it has to work. Yeah, I think generally people may over-index a little bit on this notion of an MVP. One of the values that we have in the business is good is better than perfect, which the good thing about good is better than perfect is that good is something that you redefine over time. What is good enough? Right? And maybe today this is good enough, tomorrow this might not be. So in terms of the technology, the very first version was just a hacked together vlogging engine that was turned into an inventory management system. So you actually started just thinking about the how you built mm -hmm. this this company. You started with inventory management. That yeah. was the first piece of software so yeah. the boutiques could understand what they've got. Yeah. And then you began to overlay the SEO, yeah. the way in which they could you could take them to market. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it retrospectively now, you post-rationalize a lot. Uh, it was a little bit more dirty than that, right? Yeah. The, you come out with a very early version that just allows you to create a product. And we didn't have... Oh, sorry, what was that vision yeah. there? Was it, I'm going to build an inventory management system? Or was it, I'm going to build what's true is today? So in the very, very early days, we actually started with going out and uh, trying to sell a point of sale system to the shops of a PowerPoint. And I will never forget their reactions. They were like, what is this? I don't understand what you're saying. Because they really didn't. Like, it was completely out of the world. And they were like, well, I'm already selling. Like, I don't need that. I just look at what products I have. And that's good enough. And if something runs out, I'll buy some new, I'm done. So actually what we figured out was trying to push that point of sale thing didn't really make much sense if we weren't going to drive consumers to them. So the very early version was just an end-to-end -end solution of like, okay, can we get these 10 shops to upload 20 products? And then let's push those 20 products out there and see if we can get customers for these products. So kind of getting a very early draft version of an end-to-end -end kind of experience. And then you start building it up. And that, that's kind of the marketplace play, right? You've got supply, you've got demand. And then the magical formula is how do I grow supply and demand in a way that each influences each other? And that's kind of how we grew the technology, the team and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's really important to share that people listening, they think, oh, Truva, you know, mm. Alex woke up one day and thought, I'm going to build this. And it doesn't work like that. Oh, no, no. And that's the beauty of software, isn't it? Yeah. Is that as you go through that, that process, that iteration, yeah. you can adjust the model yeah. until you do get that product market fit. A hundred percent. I think most of the founder stories I know and other founders that um, I'm in touch with, you know, there's a certain version that comes out in the media and PR. By the PR company. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, this beautiful story of like, oh, one morning they woke up and they were like, oh, let's do this and look at them now three years later. It's a huge thing, blah, blah. It's never like that. It's a lot around experimentation, understanding. The key question is always, am I creating value? And if I'm not really creating value, then there's no reason continuing with that. You can get as many downloads as you want. It will collapse if you're not creating value. You can get as many kind of awards and, and PR articles out there. If you're not creating value for the end user, at some point earlier or later, and hopefully earlier, it's going to collapse. So you have to constantly rethink that. And I guess already today, people are looking at the Truva side thinking, this is great. But you're already five steps ahead now thinking about, well, where can this go in terms, especially with the power of you know software and machine learning? You have to. Well, one, well it depends. Uh, again, 
your own ambitions, where you want to get to, what you want to build, right? I think a lot of people just fall into the trap of thinking they want to build a VC-backed business that is going to be this big. Um, but that's not a default, right? Maybe you want to build a lifestyle business that still makes quite a lot of cash, but like you don't have all that pressure behind you. Maybe you want to build something else. Like I think it's important for people to be true to themselves and just figure out early on what they want to do. In our case, it was, yeah, we want to try to build up something that has a global reach and impact and very strong technologically influence. And that's why we went down that way. And that means that we always have to be ahead of the curve and always think about what is the future? What does the future look like? And how can we adjust the way that we're moving in order to reach that future as well? So you are, for those listening, interested in uh, building a tech business. Yeah. You know, they, they would love to do what you've done. And, you know, when you're trying to build this kind of business, I've had people on the show who said, uh, you know, I would build a business, make a profit from day one, and I sell a product to the margin, I just sell more and more and keep going, which is absolutely one way of doing it. Mm. And however, to do what you've done, typically, your costs are going to far outweigh mm. your profit for quite a long time. Yeah. So you have to raise money. Yeah. And you have some, you know, some of the big names on your share register. Yeah. And just share with the listeners how you approach that. And was that something you kind of understood from day one? Or was it something you, because you, you do have some expertise in that from your, yeah. your co-founders. Yeah. Just take us through that process. Yeah, I mean... Exactly what you said, right? You can build businesses where profit is key part of building that business from day one, and that's great. Then there's other businesses where it's a bit more of a moonshot. You know that it will require significant capital to build out a certain critical mass, the economies of scale that arise from that, and a maturity in your operational efficiencies that will lead to a world where every incremental pound you're making is dropping straight to the bottom line and actually your cost line isn't increasing anymore. It's actually decreasing over time. And it's the famous valley of death, right? Like you start The J-curve. Yeah, yeah the, the nice J-curve that everyone wants to have. But everyone forgets that there's this little valley of death down there where most staffs go to die, right? Because you never get the curve. We were quite cognizant from very early on that that was the kind of thing we were trying to achieve because at the end of the day in order to be able to build to get this business to the levels that we wanted to you would have to scale very quickly but also you would need time for the economies of scale to come through for that margin to increase enough for your repeat rate to really shine through and your LTV numbers to look to really start contributing to that bottom line that's why we also took those decisions to surround ourselves with the venture capitalists that we have on the roster, with our board, and the people around us generally are all people that have marketplace expertise. And typically marketplaces are the ones that, well, other businesses as well, but marketplace is very hard for you to build it out and shoot for profit from day one. There's not that many marketplaces out there that are able to actually do that. So yeah, it was surround yourself with the right people, learn a lot, we learned a lot from the Just Eat guys. We learned a lot from the Farfetch guys. How did they deal with the complexities early on? And then anything that we could do and apply, we would. A lot of our advisors are marketplace people. So surround yourself with the right people. Make sure that you're clear between the founding team that this is the type of game you want to play. Start building up those relationships and networks that will allow you to do so. Capital being a fundamental concern from day one that you will have to raise significant capital to make it happen. And then ensure that you understand what the market is saying about the type of business that you're building. What because kind of timing economics. can be everything. Oh, 100%. 
Uh, I think the fintech market. It's insane. Uh, Sometimes you're lucky and you're spot on. Uh, Sometimes you're you're just behind the curve and you're trying to catch up. Sometimes you're not really that hot anymore. And we've seen that consumer businesses. There was quite a an increase in investments going on in that space. Then there was a bit of a trough. Now it's growing again. It's very interesting. That's one thing you can't control. But if you talk to the right people and you get an understanding of how they think about the market, then at least you learn enough to prepare yourself. So when you approach some of these investors that are on your cap table, they're quite serious outfits. How did you go about doing that? Was it something you were sort of creating those relationships and building them from day one? Or was it one day you thought, oh, we need to raise some money and start (laughs) knocking on doors? Um, And also when you got into that process, a lot of people listening think, if I go to venture capital, I won't. I lose control of my business, and I'll end up with one percent of it, and which is possible. But if it's uh, worth ten billion, that's fine. But how? How? What was your experience? Yeah, I think first thing is make sure you read enough and understand whether if you want to take uh, venture capital money in the first place. If your thinking is, well, uh, I want to always control my business for however long it will exist, and I want to be always in the majority, then maybe you'll pull it off. But like if you're taking significant capital early on, your valuations are not going to be there for you to be able to do that subsequently for many rounds and still have like a majority of the business. We started building our network very, very early on. Part of it was through people around us. But I think the number one tip is anyone you meet and you value, ask them for two or three intros of other people that they value as well you can build a very strong network very, very quickly just by that one specific question of like, who else do you think I should be talking to? You might do a bunch of meetings that are useless, but generally it really helps to just ask that question. Who else should I be talking to? Can you do an intro? And uh, they say to you, that's great. Come back to us when you can show us that this works or that works or you prove this hypothesis. What was the general feedback at the time you approached them? Um, very mixed. At the beginning, you don't have a brand. No one really knows you. You have a small network around you. You're really looking for that one person that's going to believe in what you're trying to achieve. A lot of people were just straight out, you're insane, that's not going to work. But did you ever think, oh, hang on a minute, I might not be able to raise that 11 million, so I might have to go home? Yeah, I mean, that's always part of the game. Uh, And I think... No, but did you ever seriously wake up in the morning in a cold sweat thinking... Yeah, Ooh, I've got, you know, payroll in two months. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's good yeah. for people to hear that because oh, yeah. people think these things, you, know, you wake up, you build a business, you, no. you, the, the VCs come in and, you know, 10 years later you go buy an island. We, it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, I mean, for some it is. Uh, sometimes well, even, it even works though, like that. Yeah, it's very rare, it's luck. Uh, and most people would talk about it like that, but the reality is that, yeah, you will go. I mean, if you don't go through any of the, oh, I'm running out of money, oh, uh, I've got a payroll in a month and it's Christmas and what am I going to do? Um, so what did you do? Because it can be when you're trying to raise finance and you're running out of money, yeah. you know, is that the incoming investor potentially can mm-hmm. smell blood. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. One thing that from my perspective is key is being, first of all, clear with your team. If you're running out of money in whatever time frame, I think it's important for the team to know. And yeah, you might lose people, but at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to them and you need to be authentic enough. So you had those conversations. Of course, yeah. I mean, and did anybody say, not come back from lunch? No, but I, well, no, I haven't had that yet, but I don't know. Maybe some people have dropped off that has happened in the past. But like, 
I do, and I think most of the, the people in my team will be able to validate that. But even in the very early sessions that I do with them in onboarding, I'm like, well, this is a J curve. We're kind of here. We have this much runway. By the end of that line, either we're going to make it or not. And you've subscribed to that journey when you joined that company. And it's, it's very clear. It's very important for people because the worst thing is when people feel stressed about not knowing. Well, the thing is, in your kind of business, the people joining it, they know that's there somewhere. So by not knowing where they are on that journey yeah. is probably not a good thing. Yeah. So that's one side of things. Now, with the investors, it's always important to kind of make sure what, what are you trying to get out of them? Yeah, of course, when you're running out of money, they might smell blood, you may get a worse deal, all that kind of stuff. But did you find that? Were they looking out? Were they looking for that opportunity? I think or was it, it a negotiation ploy? I think as an investor, you there is a level of opportunism that, like, you have to be able to smell blood, right? Like, at the end of the day, and negotiate the best deal that you can for yourself. At the same time, it's important to realize that the more you squeeze down the entrepreneur, the less likely it is for this to be a success. And then it's a big fat zero at the end of the day. So it doesn't really make that much sense. And I think so far, at least, uh, we've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by people that understand that at the end of the day, if you do a fair deal, the entrepreneur will do more than compensate the backing that you have given them in a difficult time. And that results in better results than uh, squeezing down the entrepreneurs too much because then they don't have a motivation to push really hard. Well, that's all very positive. Let's dig into there's a... The days and the things that kept you awake at night. <laughs> so you've, you've, you know, your business is growing very quickly. Yeah. Um, what is it that's kept you awake at night, or still? Keep, I don't just mean you. I mean your your founding team or your senior team. I think um, what affects me more is kind of thinking about within the team. How can we ensure that we are changing the way that we're doing things as we're growing? We were very top down in a sense of like for the very beginning, at least. Um, and for many years, actually, we were very strong operators of like hands on going to the nitty gritty of things. Who's, who's the visionary? Who's the hours looking co-founder? Um, I think we look at it both from different perspectives and we align with each other. For me, it's a lot more on utilizing technology and, and figuring out the product proposition for the customers and, and looking at trends like AR and how that could apply in a concept like Truva, how we could build out the supply chains for 3D models and all that kind of stuff. Mandeep looks at it from a more macro perspective of like, okay, where is retail moving and where is our space and how can we do the right commercial negotiations right now to lock down our future? And that really, it's a very nice mix between those two parts. We also now have more of a senior team around us with people that are a lot more consumer focused as well, like our CMO, Juliet, who was previously the marketing director of Amazon Fashion for five years, Mary Claire before editor there and at WGSN and all that kind of stuff. So she understands the consumer really, really well. Um, and you've got yeah. an ex-Uber exec. Yeah, so Neil Vaz, who's our chairman, yeah, I mean, uh, he loves, uh, he's very operational, has been very deep into business and really helped them grow and, and, and loves the challenge of building out marketplaces and has been very, very, very helpful for us. So you're, you're finding, so bringing in these expertise, yeah. people have the domain expertise, mm -hmm. that's really helping you. Yeah. And that's something you're used to look for. Yeah, and that, that is something that also requires us to rethink how we run the business. Because if you're building out a lot of expertise around you and you're building people that are really, really good at what they're doing, 
a top-down approach doesn't really work anymore. You need to start kind of thinking about, okay, how can I get a lot more bottom-up influence in how I do the budget or how I take certain decisions around objectives or how I'm thinking about the strategy over the next six to 12 months. And that that is something that is really interesting but very frightening as well because how do you do that in a way that the business doesn't stall? How do you do that in a way where you still are moving towards the vision that you have but you're giving a lot more responsibility and ownership to other people that are better at what they're doing. How have you found that in terms of, because you can't get away from this in yeah. any of these conversations, is how have you found that building that team, you know, letting go a little bit in terms of letting go of the reins and, you know, ending this sort of command and control approach? In, in some cases, I, I thought that, for example, in engineering, it would have been a lot harder uh, for me to basically just take a step back. And it still itches sometimes to basically be like, OK, I'm just going to fix this or I'm just going to do that change. I think as long as you're, it's a lot around doing an introspection once in a while and being like, OK, where do I want to be? But have you learned to have those conversations with people that, for example, I don't know how, you, how you're structured, but reporting to you, for example? Yeah. Are you more willing now to sit down with somebody and say, look, yeah, great, but this is not working out and we're going to have to part company Both as civilly as possible. Both sides. I mean, the one, one important learning, and I think that's one of the hardest learnings as an entrepreneur is that at the end of the day, you are going to be initially the person that will have to take those sorts of decisions. And, and it's never a, an easy thing, but you need to understand that if you don't believe in the person that works in your company, then you're limiting their growth and they're wasting their time being there. At the same time, you're creating dynamics that are bad for your team and the bad for the company as well. So you have to initiate those conversations. Um, it goes the other way around as well, though. You need to be able to, especially if you have a leadership team around you, you need to be able to sit in a room and get feedback from them about your behaviors, about the way that you're talking, about the way that you're running things. Uh, and yeah, you're not going to take everything and make it gospel, but some of the things that they're going to tell you are going to be very valuable and help you grow as a person as well. And on that point, how have you find experience of bringing external investment, bringing external um, ideas and um, expertise onto, the, onto your board, but also your senior management team? Mm. How have you felt about that? I mean, because obviously you've come out of uni. You're a software engineer. I'm sure yeah. you thought you could change the world. Yeah. We're probably hiring engineers now that know more about coding than you do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which is a good thing, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, it's um, it's extremely rewarding uh, because, uh, one, it's, it's a bit selfish, but you're like, okay, these guys want to work with me, so I'm doing something right. Uh, I'm not that bad at what I'm doing because at the end of the day, it's a lot of selling, right? Like getting high-quality, high-caliber quali people in to believe in your vision in a startup, they have to believe in you. If they don't believe in you, then they're not going to do it. Uh, so that's kind of a, okay, I'm doing something right. Uh, on the other hand, it's there is a bit of relief. You know, when especially, I, I think it's in every function, but as an en engineer, when you've built up the initial kind of uh, product and all that kind of stuff, for years you feel like, if something goes bad, if something goes down, if at two o'clock, three o'clock, there's a problem with the servers, if, if if the product isn't working, if during Christmas, where we're like a critical time in the year, something blows up, I'm going to have to be, like, I'm the only one who knows how this thing is set up. I'm the only one that can fix it. Uh, and I think that that applies a tremendous amount of stress. So now you're glad there's none of your code left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still some left, uh, but I hope not for long. Um, so I think that that part, there's a bit of relief. But yeah, there's there's learning more about yourself and figuring out how to let go is a very good thing, I think. 
uh, in a structured way. So you don't just throw people in the deep. I'm going to have to start wrapping up. I could talk to you all day about this. It's a fascinating uh, business and a, a, a sort of sector to be playing in. But if you could take one thing from Truva, and it can be something you've done or something you plan to do, that you're extremely proud of, what would that be? For me, the one thing, uh, I, I remember a moment uh, when we launched Truva about six months later, um, I was talking to one of our shops uh, and, and they were like, uh, I just wanted to let you know that now I'm paying my rent uh, through the revenues that you're driving to Truva. Now, it might seem like a small thing, but as an entrepreneur, when you're thinking about creating value, for these types of shops, the existential factor is, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my business rates? If those go up, I'm in a very bad position and I might have to shut down. So being able to kind of create something where you're removing that existential thread and you're actually building a way towards the future. That was the very first moment where I felt like, okay, all this stuff that we went through and we tried out and all that and all these things that I have in my head and the story that I'm telling myself, it's actually becoming reality. Um, I think that was some that was a moment that I always gonna remember as as one of the highlights of my journey. Uh, so that was the the proof of the hypothesis, basically. Exactly. It's or it's one just one sentence, you know, like it's one phone call, one sentence of like, I'm paying my rent now with the money that you're driving to me. It wasn't a thank you and all, I just wanted to let you know kind of thing. And it's it's just, okay, cool. Like that is what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. Well, that's a great thing to end, Alex. Yeah. It's been great talking to you today and thank you. Amazing. Thanks for the time. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. A huge thanks to Alex Loizu, founder of Truva. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening.